June 20th, and this is Rabbi Adli Shior. Several years ago, it's for sure more than 10 years ago, uh, the subject of the weekly shear was the uh, Sefer HaChinuch. And every shear we did a mitzvah. That year I was teaching Sefer HaChinuch in at least two other places, and uh, occasionally it was not clear uh, where I was up to in any particular shear, uh, because I was doing similar material. But as it was, I gave a particular shear on a particular mitzvah, and the next week I came in, and I gave the identical shear that I had given the week before. And at the end of the shear, my father, Olav Shalom, who was here for the shear, pointed out to me, he said all this last week. So first I asked, why did you say that at the beginning? So I would have you know, switched gears immediately. He said that uh, it didn't make a difference. Some people weren't here, and those who were here, it was new material. <laughs> so that was you know, very, very consoling. <laughs> The truth is, there's a concept called Ein Bet Midrash Lelochi Dush. There's no such thing as Torah study without something novel, even if it's a similar topic or same topic and same sources. I recall once um, at the drasha that the Rav gave before Yom Kippur in front of 3,000 people, and he began by just breaking the ice of the tension. He says, uh, I'll say it in Yiddish, because then I'll translate it. He says, Rabbi Sa'ala is the Zelba Rambam of his Gate Nizayin, the Zelba Shir. You know that it's the same Rambam text, but it's not going to be the same Shir. I mean, that, I mean he was really a, uh, an artist in that, Kunstler, uh, as they say, really an artist in doing that, and being able to extrapolate different ideas from the same text and uh, showing how you can use Torah in multifaceted uh, ways. Um, so sometimes we do forget, and that's uh, something that's very, very normal. We shouldn't uh, get terribly excited about it. But uh, unfortunately, we know that uh, there is uh, dementia that has entered into the world. And I say entered into the world. It's not something that wasn't around from Rashid Barayel Kim, except that because of the blessing of longevity, so that blessing came along with it uh, some unpleasant uh, side effects. And um, while a, a, a disease, a neurological disorder that we're familiar with uh, called Alzheimer is not something that's limited to people age 70, 80, and 90. There are people who even at age 40 can come down with it, but that's already something rare. Uh, and just 150 years ago, where the average life expectancy was between age 40 and 45, and within 100 years, 150 years, it jumped to 84 for women and 81 for men, which means that if a young couple want to leave the world together, so they should, a guy should marry a girl who's three years older than him, and then it just works out on the averages. But uh, because the average is 84 for women and 81 for men, you have a significant uh, population uh, that is constantly growing in the upper 80s and 90s, and some people have eclipsed the three-digit 100 mark, um, and um, you know we, we talk about it in my fam- my wife's family who we went to the states two weeks ago and one of the reasons my wife uh, visits her mother who's turning 97 now and has literally all her marbles and uh, physically and mentally and while we were there we visited her older brother who was 98 and a half yeah so uh, this okay that doesn't happen every day but the fact is that um, I'm familiar too familiar with it in my own family I know what the Alzheimer is and uh, this question has come up dealing with issues of Torah and science uh, how the halacha adapts to new medical conditions that we may not have been aware of so in the days of the Rambam uh, they, they, Rambam may have been aware of people who lost their uh, capability of memory and so on but was not able to put a finger on a diagnosis he didn't have a clue what was going on in the brain, and only with uh, you know, MRIs and CTs can you get an accurate picture today of what's happening. And even with these highly sophisticated, state-of-the-art uh, machinery, gadgetry, you have a, a good picture, but it's not always an absolute picture. But we're, we're doing better today than we ever did before, 
in coming close to a diagnosis. That's why what neurologists sometimes recommend, if there's some type of issue, neurological issue happening, they do a full neurological workup and have a baseline so that when you come back in two years, and three years, and five years, they're able to compare and see what's happening. And th these things are very, very important. And now the question is how the uh, halachas uh, deal with, and what area uh, uh, can we say that there's a, an issue? So take, for example, my mother has advanced case of Alzheimer's. In, uh, I know this for the last 17 years it's been diagnosed already, but for about 10 years my mother was a very good actress and was able to, uh, as they say, fake it in, uh, in social situations and get along fairly well with people. But the last seven years has been a slide. And um, to the extent that, you know, while I may pay uh, several, really, several visits during the week to uh, Neve Amit, uh, I'm not 100% sure my mother knows who I am, and I'm the closest person to Aria in this world, the closest, yeah. The good thing about Aldenaira is you get to meet new people every day. Yeah, okay, so my younger brother said this to me, and it's a black humor. Uh, yeah, as they say in Yiddish, yena galechtakait, you know. Okay, I said that. I didn't want to say it. You said it. Vakasha. Okay, okay. The truth is, humor sometimes helps you uh, deal with situations. I mean, there, were, there was humor even in the Shoah, as, as horrible as that sounds. People themselves poke fun at themselves about the situation and so on. So uh, it's not, you know, it's not to be disqualified. But nevertheless, it's a, it's a very, very sad and tragic situation of a human being who was particularly active and uh, intelligent and this and that. And now all of a sudden, you know, the person really uh, is not functioning. The person's alive and uh, living, going through, you know, biological functions, but uh, mentally just not with us. And uh, the question is, even Chazal used the phrase in Pirkei Avot, when it talks about uh, at 5 years old, at 10 years old, at 13, at 15, at 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, and then it says, Ben Mea, Ki'ilu Meit, Batel, Ve'over Merolam. We use the phrase in Yiddish, Ove'er Butel, Ove'er Batel, that's where it comes from. And, and basically Chazal realized that that status does exist, that Ki'ilu Meit, Kilomate means the person's not dead, but from practical point of view of what makes a person human, the person's ability to choose and, and, and recognize what's good and bad, and what's good for him, judgment, judgment issues, that, that's very much our humanity. And when that's taken away because of neurological uh, disease, the person becomes in Yiddish, oismensch, not a human being to a certain degree, to a certain level, and Chazal called that kilomate. Chazal used that expression several times over person who has leprosy, tzarat kemeit, person who's completely destitute, doesn't have anything in his life, aniyam kemeit, and, and other examples. And the idea is that uh, uh, there, there is a certain vitality to life that if you don't have A, B, C, and D, you're missing that potential vitality, and, and therefore um, it's almost like the person is not living. Even the person is living. And a person who suffers from Alzheimer's, severe, advanced Alzheimer, you're still allowed to and are required to be Mechal Shabbos to save the person if, if God forbid, there's a medical emergency. You can't say, oh, the person's already you know, 20 years like this or 15 years like this. What's the difference? The person will die. No, the person sustains a heart attack on Shabbat. You have to save him. And, and that's the halacha. You can't. You, that's not, we're not into euthanasia on any level um, to say that we're not going to, uh, uh, you know, save save a person. There is a thing called that's a delicate subject of DNR. Do not resuscitate under certain conditions where a person is a goses, where a person has a halachic status of one foot out of this world already. Uh, that's a different story. The person really has shown that, that there's just. It's just a question of, let's say, a few hours or even a few days, but a uh, person is not going to live any longer. A person is, uh, it's terminal without a question. So then, I'm not giving any blank checks here. There, a rub has to be consulted, but there are certain scenarios where certain rabbanim have allowed to, uh, to inform uh, the first responders not to resuscitate. Yeah, Rav Shah Rivka. Second of all, uh, Alzheimer's is called the observer's disease. Because the they have... suffers right. from looking at a loved one right. who doesn't recognize them. The observer's disease, all right. But your first comment also is extremely important. We don't have a clue what really is going on in the mind of an Alzheimer's person. We don't know. 
and therefore um, it's still important to stimulate. I can tell you that music is a great stimulant, an absolutely phenomenal stimulant. Um, I mean, we get every Friday afternoon. I go to my wife now at four o'clock and get my mother to sing Shalom Aleichem and Eishes Chayel and all this she remembers. So you know, we know that long-term memory is the last thing to go. We know that. So we turn the clock back, you know, to, to the early days and. And, and try to get her to remember, to talk, to even... And, and sometimes it comes out and it becomes, a, a more, let's just say, a more pleasant visit that we, we all got something out of it and not just that, that we sat there. The question that came up before Rabakshi Daron. Rabakshi Daron served as the Sephardi chief rabbi of Israel between the years two, uh, 1992 and 2002. Um, he was the Rav Rashi. Svaradi, the, Re- the Rishon Letzion, at the time that Rav Yisrael Meilau, Rav Lau Sr., was the uh, chief rabbi. So, uh, we don't get into the politics, but uh, uh, there were, a law was amended um, in 1977 that, uh, where previously, from 1921, the chief rabbi was re-elected every five years, and uh, both Ashkenazi and Svaradi, from the days of Rav Kuk in 1921, and uh, Rav Rashi could put himself up for, uh, to, to, re- to renew his uh, tenure. Uh, and it was just renewable every five years until either he dies or he just quits. And he says, that's it, you're going to retirement. And uh, more often than not, they, they didn't quit. They, they continued. Why shouldn't they continue? But there was a little political upheaval in the Rabbanut Rashid in 77, where by 1979 they changed the law and uh, said that there will be a 10-year term, but it's non-renewable. And that started in 82, and, uh, and then 92, 2002, 2012. There's always elections for the chief rabbi. Now the children continue. Now the children continue, right. We've had this already tw- in two levels, both on Rav Lau and Rav Ad Yosef. That's correct. That's great. That's what's called all in the family, right? <laughs> Yerusha. And by the way, you're talking about Yerusha. You know, the, um, there was a Shaila that was raised in Ramat Gan, when the, the, the last rabbi who just actually officially retired was Yaakov Ariel, but before Rav Ariel was elected chief rabbi, there was a very distinguished uh, rav of, of, of the city, and when he was aging, he insisted that his son, who was working within the framework of the municipal rabbinate anyway, should be the successor, by ver- and not have an election, and not have an election, bypass the whole process, by virtue of the Rambam in Hilchot Malachim, who says that all public officials, the dinam of Yerusha apply. Dinam of Yerusha apply. And uh, this was taken up as a serious case, and that great city rabbi lost the case. And his son put himself up anyway as a candidate, and Rabbi Yaakov Ariel beat him. So um, he did, the son did not uh, win the election. Uh, but it was an attempt by the father to get the son you know, into the position by, uh, I'll even say, exploiting uh, the, the Rambam on this. But it didn't work. It just didn't work. And today the law is of a different nature. So Rabakshi Daron, after he finished his tenure, you know, went back home to write Svarim and, uh, and, and whatever he's doing, he's doing. But the question came up about... Um, Having the, if you have a minion in shul, and you know there are many, many shuls, especially in the winter months for min in the early uh, hours, like 4, 4, 4, 30, quarter to 5, where if it's a community synagogue where many of the uh, residents are still at work, so they may have daven mincha on the job at these, you know, quarter to 1 minyan and one thirty minyan and whatever. So there's always a problem getting the minion in the community shul. Sometimes we have that even here in Ol Nechama, which are, so, so the problem is that we have what's called the Shtiblach. The Shtiblach is a factory for Minyanim. So everybody just goes there because you're never there without a Minyan. It doesn't happen until the quarter of 12 at night. Every 15-minute increment, you get a Meirav. So, so, you know, why bother going to the city, the, the community shul where I'm busy doing something? I have Meirav at a quarter to 10, quarter after 10, quarter to 11. And, and that's the truth. So it, it did impact negatively on some of the community shuls in the neighborhood getting their Minyan in the weekday. So how do you put the Minyan together in the weekday, especially for Micha Meirav? You have some retired people who live close by, and uh, let's just say sometimes there's some avrichim who live in the neighborhood. They're always available, right, uh, to come and join the minion. Fine, okay, some yeshiva bachrim, and 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 sometimes you have uh, flybys. You know, you're total strangers. 
the Mila that Al Nacham has is next door to Jerusalem Theater. So you have no idea how many people before the show come in to step in for Myrev. It's a very convenient minion right next door to the Jerusalem Theater. So we have a little bit of an advantage to make sure the minion happens. But what if you have just the 10 people? And you can have that, 10 people, especially in a rainstorm, a snowstorm. You know, <laughs> they happen in situations where you don't get the minion. So you don't have a minion, you can't dive with a minion. You can dive in Mincha by yourself. But here, there's a man who came to shul because he has yard site for his father, and he, you know, he wants to say kaddish, and he figured there'll be a minion here, and it, it's not, it's not that it's, there's no minion. He can run to another shul. He might miss mincha already. So what do you do if the tenth person is an Alzheimer person? Now, why should somebody bring an Alzheimer person to shul? There happens to be good reason to do so if it's physically possible. It gives the person something, a little bit of a lift. Uh, it, yeah, it's, it's important. It is important. We, even though that person may not be a davener. person is not davening, but the experience of just being there, even if he's coming in in a wheelchair, just wheeling him in, being there, you know, giving him some type of sensation of being part of something that he may or may not remember, but nevertheless, uh, it does have some value. Uh, I can tell you that uh, one of the things my eldest daughter does when she visits my mother always wheels it downstairs to the shul and they start doing uh, singing Hallel, whatever, you know. They, and they start singing, you know, singing Hallel and this and that. I mean, it's kind of eaten for my mother. It's, it's a tremendous thing. You have to have a lot of patience doing this and you have to have the time to do it. But it's, it's tremendous. And if somebody, whether a person has a, you know, a Filipino, whether a person has a, you know, some member of the family to take an Alzheimer person to shul on a regular basis, it's a wonderful thing. So Rav Gebakshi Daron was approached by a particular shul where it became an issue the tenth man was the Alzheimer person. Can he be counted to the minion? And the you know, whenever there's such a question and a chuva is written about it, the response of, so you know right away there are two sides to the coin. Because if it was yes or if it was no, they wouldn't bother writing about it. But if there's a legitimate concern on either side of the spectrum, then there's something to talk about. There's, there's already a halachic discussion and you may or may not agree with the final conclusion because some other Rav may have taken the same sources and interpret them somewhat differently or perhaps one Rav puts more weight on some of the sources and the other Rav puts more weight on other sources. For example, an Ashkenazi Sephardi split. So if you take a Shaila and you see that from the Rambam and Rabbi Yosef Karo, you know, all the way down to Rav Avad Yosef, the Halakha is swinging in one direction. But if you see the Balea Tosafot, you see the Ramon and Shulchan Aruch, you see it down to Ramon Feinstein, for example, or the Chavetz Chaim and the Mishnah Bura, you're getting a different take on it. So then you, the Rav, who's a Rav of a particular Kehillah, of a particular Minag, so you, you're going to favor the particular point of view that matches your minhag and your, your tradition. And the other Rav down the block is made to say the other way. Even though they're both marshalling the identical sources. So that can be a split, an Ashkenazi Sephardi type of split, how the bottom line, or they all have the same sources and it's not an Ashkenazi Sephardi split, but sometimes you view a particular source differently. You introduce an understanding in the source that the other one had a different understanding to it. So now it's not a machloket in terms of factual, but it's a machloket, it's a dispute in, in logic. So, so that's not something you can open up a book and decide. Logic is logic. You understand it this way, you understand it this way, and you can come up with an opposite conclusion than the next fellow who is using the identical sources. So that's why I say this kind of discussion, while it's interesting to know at the end of the day what did he say, but that's not really the crux of the discussion. The crux of the discussion is how did he get there? How did he get there? And that makes you know, that kind of learning exciting. So to deal with Alzheimer, and you're not going to find the particular case in, in 12th century or 15th century or even 18th or 19th century post-skin. So this is a 20th century concern and 21st century concern. So you're going to have to start looking at uh, you know, the poskim of today, whether it's, um, you know, the, the, uh, even from the Mishabura, whether Chavz Chaim deals with it, or Rav Moshe Feinstein, or other poskim in the Chutzlaretz and here in Eretz Yisrael, um, the great poskim up until this very day, and then the Sephardi poskim. Fine, you, you, you see what's available. Today you don't have to be uh, knowledgeable in all the sources. All you have to do is not to use your computer. And uh, the... 
uh, I, I'll tell you that uh, I, I never knew what it meant to live with a computer, but when I was teaching Yeshiva Bnei Akiva Be'er Sheva back in 1981, I had a chaver whose wife is sitting here for the shir, and uh, Rabbi uh, um, uh, Friedman, Lipa Friedman, he was a computer specialist. And I found out what it meant to live with a computer. It was a new chiddush. It was a chiddush. What it meant to live with a computer. And now everybody lives with a computer. Who doesn't have a computer walking around with a computer? So today, you know, before you do a shear, the first thing you do is you put the disk on key into the computer and you have Kalatara Kula on the screen. So, so that's not an issue anymore. So I can get a hold of the Tzitz Eliezer and I can get a hold of any of the other Paiskim in a, in a split second and, and put it up on the screen. So I can investigate that. But the question is, how many parts can really dealt with this question? And here, Rav Bakshi Daron deals with it. And the angle that he takes is, let's examine the issue about somebody who's sleeping. What's the status of a Jew who's sleeping in shul, and the nine other people davening there? Now, if you tell me he's sleeping during the Rav's drusha, that I perfectly understand. What I wouldn't understand is why are nine still awake? That, that's, that's problematic. How is it? I would say one is listening and nine are sleeping. But that in davening, that nine are davening and one is sleeping. Do you know that I actually saw this situation, now thinking aloud, not that it was nine plus one, but sleepers in shul, you know when? Musaf on Shavuos morning, after the long night of being awake, and, and, and davening vatikin. So by the time you get to Musaf, it's usually about 6.37 in the morning. And people are standing for Shmon Esrei, and two or three people are saying Tachnun. <laughs> They're down and out, down and out. You know, some people try to give them a nudge. Nudge, it's Kedusha, you know, Kedusha. <laughs> Forget it, you know. And, and that's what led, led me to announce every year in Shul whoever cannot daven like a mesh on Shavu's morning should not stay up the whole night. Should not stay up the whole night. And if you feel that you had to daven Shachar's Vatikin, then. Go home after Shabbos, make Kiddush, lie down, come back to Shul at 10 o'clock, like I mentioned, here laning in Davin Musaf, like I mentioned. Get three hours of sleep in. It'll, you'll be a different person. It'll be a different Davening. So that issue of sleeping in Shul has happened. That, that's not, that's, that, that really has happened. So let's look at source number one. The Shulchan Aruch in the laws of uh, Brachot, Merchot HaShachar, says, Im hitchil echad me'asara litpalel levado. This is a scenario that happens all the time in a shul where you have 10, 11, 12 people for a minion and there's like chakras or mincha usually it's a mincha chazarata shatz so the chazan is patiently waiting to start chazarata shatz but you always have this one guy who stands along shman right? you know he's still here and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and he's the 10th man you know, you want to start a Chazor Zashatz, that your minion is with you. If this guy's davening Shmon he's not with you really. He's into his own tefillah. You know, they say a story of a Yeshiva Bacher who um, is not getting married. And he says he's 25 years old, he's 30 years old, he's 40 years old. And they said, you know, the Mishnah says, Ben Shmon Esrei L'Chopa, 18, you're supposed to uh, consider, uh, you know, standing under the Chopa. So, ben, and the word, the language is, Ben Shmon Esrei L'Chopa. So he said, you ever see how long I stand Shmon Esrei? So I said, he stands Shmon Esrei a long time, so he's 40 years old yet, and he hasn't gotten married. Let's say that. The, um, so that's one scenario. If one of the ten who is davening on his own, which means the Milch Shmon Esrei, and he's not with the Tzibur, and he cannot answer. No, he can't answer. Oh, man, he's not going to be able to answer Kedusha and so on. Oh, Shehu Yashem. One out of the ten is sleeping. Afilu Hachi says to Shulchan Aruch, nevertheless, mitztaref imahem. You can count him to the minion, which means Shlich Tzibur can stop rolling. And I can tell you, Halacha Lemaisa, there are many shuls that give, the Gabbai gives the green light to the Chazan to start Chazor Sashaz when nine people have finished. Then there could be another 25 people in the middle of the Shmon But if the nine people, the Chazan plus another eight, have finished, you can see the Gabbai nodding to the Chazan, you know, Kadima, move, Sa, Satra, start, start your Shmon Now, obviously, if you have nine people and 25 not finished, it's not polite anyway. So, but, but there's a difference between 25 not finished or two guys not finished out of 100. 
But you have a shul of 100, you, have, you go to a shul on Shabbos, a normal shul, you have 100, 150 people, and, um, and, and the chazan turns around to see if he should start the chazar sashats, for shachos and muslim. The two guys, you know, langish monastery, and it's not, they're not backing up. They're not backing up for another five hours. So, so, so you can't wait for them. There's tircha de tzibura. You can't do that. So that's understandable. But here you have a scenario where one out of ten is sleeping and says nine, you can start the chazar sashats. What does that mean, essentially? It really means that the sleeper is counted to the minion. That's what it means. The sleeper is counted to the minion, and the fellow who is the Milshman Esrei is also counted to the minion, and that's why it, it's interesting. It doesn't say two or three sleepers. It doesn't say two or three people in the middle They're usually careful that there should be at least nine who are, are with the chazan. And I have a hunch what the heter might be based on. There's a Gemara Masechet Brachot at the tail end that says, Tish'a ve'aron mitztarfin. If you only have nine in shul. Nine in shul. Can you imagine how uh, frustrating that is? Somebody wanted Tefillah B'tzibur. And Tefillah B'tzibur is not just the quantitative add-ons of Kaddish and Kedusha and Baruch and Kriyata Torah and Birkat Kohanim, but it's a qualitative edge. It's a different type of Tefillah between yourself and a Kadosh Bachu if it's linked to the community of Klal Yisrael. So a person is disappointed that he doesn't have Tefillah B'tzibur. So the Gemara says he can count the Oren Kodesh, the Sefer Torah, as the ninth man, the tenth man. So it doesn't mean the Sefer Torah, it means God. You can, can include God into the minion. Where's that come from? It comes from the Tefillah of Avram Avinu for Sodom. Because he began by saying if there are 50 tzaddikim in Sodom, and, and then he goes down to 40 and 30 and 20 and 20 and 10, and at the end of 10, you know, there's nothing. But he also does 45. So what's the 45? So Rashi explains that Stone had like five burrows, five areas. And really what Abraham Avinu was discussing, if there's a minion of tzaddikim in each area, would that be okay? Would, he, would God in, would give the area uh, 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 another chance to have these ten impact on them positively? Would there be more patience? Erech And the Kedosh said, yeah, let's see if there are ten tzaddikim. And then he says, what if there are only nine tzaddikim in each area? So nine times five is forty-five. So where's the nine? Where's the tenth? Tenth is a Kedosh Baruch that Avraham Avinu asked the Kadosh Baruch Hu to join the minion. Now he can join five shuls at the same time. It's not a problem, right? So he can be the minion. And then Rashi says, when, when Avraham asked for 40, he then asked for 36, 9 times 4. And when he asked for 30, he asked for 27, three times, 9 times 3, and so on. Until he went down, until all the areas were lost, and in Malasot, as they say, couldn't do anything about it. But he tried. So as Ben Ezra says, this, you have a source for it's, it's a phenomenal source, and so on. So, um, so the idea that if one guy is sleeping or one guy is still in we are beginning Chazar Sashatz, could have a basis in the fact that in theory you can actually attach a Kadosh Baruch Hu to the minion, he's willing to do it. So the Svardim don't accept that halacha of using the Sefer Torah, which means using a Kadosh Baruch Hu as the tenth man, but the Ashkenazim, in extreme circumstances, extreme circumstances can mean, don't do it every day, don't make your minion now nine, a minion is ten, but, as I said, it's a storm outside, nine people came, and a guy has to say, Kadesh, it's not Evil, it's a yard side, and he feels really horrible. So, it's extenuating circumstances, you can do it. But the Ramah says, you should have a, a, a child who's at least a snow side of David, he's nine, ten years old, and, and give him a chumash in the hand. He's like symbolizes a Kadosh Baruch Hu. So the Rav said, why give him a chumash in the hand? Give him a siddur so he can daven, right? And then the Rav went better and he says, why a kid nine, ten years old? I would take an infant in a, in a carriage and because he has a basis of that in the Gemara, because an infant is gemulei chalav shelo pashu, is an innocent, never sinned. A nine-year-old may not be liable for sins, but he's a, he could have been made a lot of trouble in life already. Could have been a lot of trouble. So Rav said, I'd rather take an infant, uh, a six-month-old baby, you know, that's completely pure, to represent a Kadosh Baruch Hu in this world, to be the tenth man. So the tenth man is God. So maybe that's the basis. So here, Shulchan Aruch says, you can do it. You can, which means that the sleeping person is counted to the minion. So it could be it's cut and dry. Would the Alzheimer person sitting in Shul uh, be any worse than a sleeper? Probably not. But then the discussion... Um, becomes uh, more heightened because not everybody agrees with Shulchan Aruch. Not everybody agrees. The source um, number two is the same Rabbi Yosef Karo in his book that he wrote be earlier, before Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch is nothing but a digest 
an abbreviation, abbreviated version or condensed version of his Beit Yosef that he wrote on the book called The Tour, and it's encyclopedic. He brings the martial sources, and it shows you how he get, arrives at his halacha. So uh, in the middle of the page, where it's underlined, I'll just read it from the beginning of that line. Mikan lamad mori haravagadol morenor of Yaakov bey rav zechat tzaddik and so on levracha. Anybody who's visited Svat has gone to the ri bey rav rab Yaakov ben rav shul. They call it reish yud ri bey rav shul. It's one of the old shuls in Svat that one visits when you're on the tourist. There's the shul of the Beit Yasef and the shul of the Ribe Rav and the shul of uh, Shlomo Levi Al-Kabatz, the author of the, uh, of the, of the Lechadodi, and there's the Ari shul. And uh, you have all these shuls in, in Svat, these old shuls in Svat. So people have heard of the name uh, Ribe Rav, and he was a contemporary of Rabbi Yosef Karo in Svat in the 16th century. And he wrote, You can count that sleeper to the minion, to the other nine, for purpose of Kaddish and Kedusha. This line opened up a whole discussion. Did he really mean to say Kaddish and Kedusha, etc., and everything else you need a minion? Or did he say just for Kaddish and Kedusha? But for Chazorah Sashatz, and for Kriya Zatayra, and for Birkat Kohanim, no, you can't use them. Only for Kaddish and Did he mean only Kaddish and Kedusha? Problem is, the man died 450 years ago. I can't ask him, what did you have in mind? So now it becomes a whole discussion, what did he have in mind? And um, on source number three, again, we're not reading every line here because it's extensive, the Taz, Turei Zahav, again, one of the commentators on Shulchan Aruch, takes issue with Rabbi Yosef Karo and marshals sources that you cannot accept the sleeper as part of the minion. Why? From a completely different direction comes the, the, the disqualification. A Kabbalistic citation of Zohar, and that is when a person is sleeping, he or she has lost his Kedusha. A Ruach Tuma has descended upon the person. And there are two reasons why we do Nitilat Yadayim in the morning when we wake up. Reason number one is halachic, and reason number two is Kabbalistic. Kabbalistic. Halachic is that you have to wash your hands because you may have touched an area of the body that, was, that makes you Tamei, and before you daven, before you say brachot, you have to wash your hands. But that's a halacha. That, that, which, by the way, is suspended on Yom Kippur and on Tisha B'Av. According to the Rambam, and who's a pure halachist, with zero Kabbalistic impact and influence on the Mishnah Torah, on Yom Kippur and on Tisha B'Av, there is no washing of the hands in the morning. And he says, there's no bracha, I'll need to let you die. Now, we were trained that we wash our hands until the second you know, knuckle hand, until the second bend of the fingers, even on Tisha B'Av and on Yom Kippur. That's how we were brought up. We were educated to do that. Why? It seems to be against halacha. Believe me, that's not the first and only thing that the Kabbalists have done that's against the halacha that has become popular. I mean, really popular. Uh, so, so why do we do that? Because of this concept of Ruach Tumah, that when you wake up in the morning, you have to somehow disperse the this evil, this this uh, type of uh, spiritual um, uh, filth that that has encompassed a person, and and that can be accomplished by this nitilat yadayim, and you have to do it even in Yom Kippur and in Tisha B'av. This is the the feeling of the capitalists. So if this is true that there's ruach uh, tuma when a person sleeps, so how can you count somebody to a minion who's enveloped with Ruach Tum'ah. So this became the objection to the Halachis who said that the sleeper can be counted to a minion. So here you have a machloket, a dispute, one way or another, um, uh, with regard to uh, the difference between the Halachis and the Kabbalists. So now the question is, so what really is the status uh, so a person with Alzheimer is not a sleeper. You can't say he doesn't have Ruach Tumah. He has Ruach Tumah. You can't say that. But perhaps there's something else that gives a person his or her Kiddushat Yisrael, sanctity of Am Yisrael. And that is commitment to Torah. And commitment to Torah is not only what you once believed, but what you do believe at the moment. 
And the figuring is that if a person is dementia, a person, demented, then maybe at that moment, the person doesn't have a clue what Torah is any longer. Can that be investigated in the world of Halakha? So the question is, what's the status of a sleeper vis-a-vis this level of Kedushat Yisrael? Right now he's sleeping. Okay, but you give him a nudge, he'll wake up. Do you believe in Torah? Yes. You know? So even while he's sleeping, he still believes in Torah, essentially. It's just that he's not conscious at the moment, so he can't express himself. But can you deny that he does not have Kedushat Yisrael? So this is now a, a, a full-fledged discussion. What does Kedushat Yisrael, believing in Torah, mean? Does it be- mean the belief in God and the belief in Matan Torah and the belief and commitment in mitzvot? Or does it mean the real possibility of performance of mitzvot? There's a world of a difference. While you may suggest that a sleeper conforms to the first definition, even as a sleeper, you know, he's still a believer in God, believer in Torah, believer in the commitment. He just doesn't do it now because he's sleeping. Or is it the second definition? In spite of the fact that he believes in God, believes in Torah, believes in everything, but his actions are not regarded as mitzvot. If for whatever reason a person is sleepwalking, that we know is a possibility, right? There is such a thing, you know that. So a person who's sleepwalking is a, is, has a, has a aloha of a sleeper. He's a sleeper. So uh, there's a mission at the end of the second paragraph of Baba Kama that talks about the uh, damages of, uh, well, first the whole Masecha talks about the beginning about an animal. Your ox, your shore does damage. You as the bala shore, you know, has certain obligations because it's your property. You should have taken care of but what about a human being? So we know with a shore, with an animal, there's a first-time offender, and it's called a shore tam, and then there's a, a, reg, a habitual offender, which is called shore mu'ad, which happens all, means it's a regular, it's habitual. And the only question is whether the habitual is after the third time or the fourth time. So that's a machloket. But in mu'ad bevalav, it says in Parshat Mishpatim, so there's a difference between shore tam and shore mu'ad. But the Mishnah says, Adam mu'ad olam. No such thing as first-time offender. You, know, you broke the guy's window, first time around. You pay. You don't say, oh, you is the first time I ever did this in my life. First time I threw a rock that went through a guy's window. Who cares if it's the first time or the millionth time? You did damage, you pay. You're not supposed to do that. You're, you're not a shore. You're not, you're not a, the problem with the, dumb, with the animal is that we don't blame the animal one way or another. We blame the owner who could say, I didn't realize that my ox would do something like that. So the Torah lets him off the hook and has him pay only half damages. 50, gets a 50% hanacha. That's what's called shomer ta, shor, uh, nezek, chatsi uh, nezek, a short time. He pays chatsi nezek, fine. But that, that's because the responsibility of the owner is a little, there's a distance between him and the action of the ox. But the person himself? No such thing as first time offender. You, you, you did damage, you pay. Adam, Muad, Olam, Ben Er, Ben Yashem. Whether you're awake, whether you're sleeping. So the Gemara says, one second. How can you fault a guy if he's sleeping to do damage? A guy's sleepwalking and kicks something, breaks something. How can you do that? So Mark qualifies and says, you're right. If he's sleeping, and he, he, you're not responsible for your damage. But let's assume before you went to sleep, you did something like you took somebody's uh, eyeglasses, you put it next to your pillow. Why did you do that? I don't know why, but I'm just giving you a case. And you went to sleep in that situation. You woke up in the morning, the frame was broken because you rolled over. Then you're going to be liable because you can't say, I broke the glasses when I was sleeping. Why did you put the glasses there in the first place? You were awake. You put, you jeopardized the situation before you fell asleep. So therefore you're going to be held liable for the damage. But if you actually did damage while you were sleeping, Demar says you're exempt. Because that's the way it is. A person sleeping does not have full faculties. So take a look at the second side. There's a Shaila here. I'm not sure how I would teach this to, a, um, to an elementary or even a younger high school crowd. But this question has to do with if a person rapes a woman in the status as a sleeper. He's a sleeper. He's a sleeper. And he, is it, and he causes the, pers- the woman, he impregnates the woman. And he impregnates the woman. This is a real crackerjack Shiloh. So the question is going to be the status of that, that baby. Because the mamzerut um, is a function of the Avera of Lotin Af. You're not allowed to commit adultery. Right? That's, it's a function of that. 
That's what led Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, and he almost paid for it with his life when some Sat Machsidim beat him up physically on this one, because Sat Marebbe held against him, but, um, and never ordered that Ramosha should be beaten on this one. But uh, Ramosha Feinstein was of the opinion that artificial insemination is not adultery, because there's no Avera of Lotin Af involved. It's not an act of adultery. And that's what causes Mamzeru. So if you have a scenario where a person is in a sleepwalk status and really has not control at all of what he's doing and cause it impregnates a woman at this time, would the baby, a, a woman who's married, in Asia Dish, a woman who's married, not his wife, not his wife, would that be considered a, um, a, a, an act of ni'uf that would result in a mamzer? And better yet, is this man responsible for the mitzvah of pruvu? Does a Kadosh Bahu put on his charts a V that he procreated? I mean, these are kind of shadows that my wife always says, this is what you guys do in the yeshiva all day? You have nothing better to do with your life than to come up with these shilas? Yeah, Jim. Well, that's, first of all, the answer... Yeah, so the answer is, you, the answer is a, a definite maybe. There are views, there are views that say that he's Mekayim Peruvu. Yeah, yeah. And some make a distinction between two aspects of Pruvu. There's a Pesach in Torah, which is either, it appears both in, in Breshet and Noach, the only Machloket is, which is the operative Pasuk for the Mitzvah. So, Sefer Chinuch picks the one in Breshet. But there's also a Pasuk in Yeshayahu, Lo Leshevet Yitzara, that is, the world was not created, that it should be empty. So, Kedosh Baruch Hu wants that it should be populated, and why is there an add-on in Yeshayahu? Because there's a minimum mitzvah pruvu of machloket beit shemay beit whether it's a boy and a girl, that's the minimum pruvu of beit And beit shemay in the Mishnah says two boys, but in the Brighton Masechet Yevamot it says two boys and two girls as being the minimum. So that's the maximum shita beit shemay in the Brighton. Beit shemay in the Mishnah is two boys, and beit is a boy and a, ba- and a girl, and that's what's. Uh, uh, the halalacha and the poskim kick in then and say, and what if you're only blessed with ten girls or ten boys? So they say it skips a generation, which means when the grandchildren start coming in, and statistically speaking, you must probably going to have the other gender, at least on the next level of uh, generation, that's when you uh, get the mitzvah. That's when you get the mitzvah. I tell you that my grandfather, Shalom, had five boys. My father was the second, and they had nicknames. Breisha, Shmois, Vayikro, Bamir, Dutvara. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My father was, was Shmois, he was second man in line. And after the Breishas and Shmois got married, there were also boys that came along. My uncle had a boy, and my father had a boy, and then I came along, another boy. When my sister was born, it was a Friday evening, my grandfather Shalom was Shlich Tzibur in a shtibel in Washington Heights for Kabbalah Shabbos. And in the middle of the Chodaydi, somebody whispered to him that my mother had a girl. And this girl lives now in Chashmanoy, my sister Judy. And um, my grandfather started dancing in the middle of davening. He just was ecstatic. <laughs> ecstatic. <laughs> And he always, he always used to say, boys, can everybody can have a boy. That's not a big deal. But to have a girl, wow. That's an accomplishment. accomplishment. So my sister was blessed with the first girl, the second girl, the third girl, the fourth girl, the fifth girl, and the sixth girl. And then came the boy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But no, she didn't have the Batsheva. No, no, no. It was a Ben. A tzaddik. So, uh, yeah, a real tzaddik. Man. So, uh, the, the, uh, the question of whether such a sleepwalker fulfills the mitzvah of pruvu. Does he have a mitzvah when he's in a sleeping state? The one who asked, who received this question was the Yavitz. Yud Ayin Bet Tzaddik. It's source number four. Who is the Yavitz? He's, it's abbreviation. Yaakov Ben Svi. He's none other than Rav Yaakov Emden very famous Rav in Germany 300 years ago. And who's the Tzvi, even more famous, was the Chacham Tzvi. His name was, no, he was known as Ratzi Ashkenazi, but he was a German you know, Rav who was invited by the, uh, those who came from Spain, from the expulsion of Spain, 15th century, there was a migration to Holland because there was freedom of religion. But they didn't have their own Rabbanim yet. 
So they imported from Germany, from Ashkenaz, Rabbonim. So that's why he had the title of a Svardi Rov, Chacham Tzvi. So he was a thoroughbred Ashkenazi, no doubt about it. But he was a Rov of Svardi Kila. And his son, the Yavitz, Yehud Ayin Bet Tzadik, became the family name Javits, like in Senator Jake Javits of New York City, of, the, of New York State. And he was a great, 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 great grandson of the Yavitz of the Rav Yaakov Emden. And now you have in Midtown Manhattan, the cultural center, the Javits Center. So Rav Yaakov Emden has a marker in Manhattan now. So this Rav Yaakov Emden was a towering Rav. He was involved in the dispute against Rav Yainet and Ibeshitz with regard to whether to go with the, Bar- with the Shabtai Tzvi or not. He was involved in many, many controversies of the day, but held his ground. So the Yavits deals with this question of a person who is a sleeper and does he have the ability to, um, to uh, re- get credit for a mitzvah. That there, are, there are all kinds of corollaries to this. Uh, many, many different mitzvah applications. And why does it become important? Because if the definition of having kedusha has to do with the ability to perform mitzvahs, then a sleeper doesn't have that level of kedusha to bring him into the fold of a minion. And this now becomes Rabbi Daron's lead up to what about the Alzheimer person? The Alzheimer person clearly does not have that ability on a personal level to do mitzvahs any longer. You know, maybe as a robot, you can get the person to perform. You can give him a piece of matzah on Pesach to eat matzah. You can roll him into the sukkah, as we do with my mother occasionally. You can do these things. But that doesn't really mean there's a kiyam a mitzvah. If there's no uh, sensation whatsoever that the act that I'm doing is in fulfillment of a mitzvah. So there has to be some type of cognition that the person is doing a mitzvah, and therefore, can you have such a person in an advanced stage? Because, you know, Alzheimer's is a big word. And there's the beginning stages, which we call the Ben Dundumim, which means the twilight zone area, which most probably is the most painful, when a person knows that the person is slipping into it, but the person still has awareness. Though that's most probably the most painful. When you get to the advanced stage, it's much less painful, because the person is just not there anymore. So at that stage, can you... Can you really look at this person who's in shul, as the tenth man in shul, count the person for a minion, if according to the Zohar, Kedushat Yisrael he has, there's no Ruch Tumah, the man's not sleeping, but if you disqualify the sleeper in shul because uh, of Kedushat Yisrael, the ability to perform, actively perform a mitzvah, so maybe with the Alzheimer person it doesn't apply, and the person cannot uh, you know, register, um, with regard to the sleeper, the logic is, you know, you can always wake him up and ask him, do you believe in Torah, do you believe in commitment to mitzvot? And obviously the answer is going to be yes. You know, you can shake the Alzheimer patient as much as you want, you're not going to get an answer, a response to that question, so that's not going to work. So it seems that there's a lot of movement to saying that we're not going to be able to count the Alzheimer person to the minion. So what happens in source number five? Source number five is Rabbi Yosef. Rav Avad Yosef, who passed away just a few years ago, in his second edition of Responsum, known as Yechavedat, so he was asked about a deaf mute. Can you count the deaf mute to a minion? Chayresh ilem, but not just a deaf mute. This is a deaf mute. Shalamad bebetsefer lechirshin ilmim. Since Helen Keller, we've discovered that a deaf mute is educable. You can teach a person sign language, communication skills, and so on. So much so, that I'll just digress for a second, there was a shaylet that was raised to the Khatam Sofer, that's Rabbi Moshe Seifer of Prezburg. So the Khatam Sofer, 19th century, was asked about a uh, child who was such a cheresh ilem, a deaf mute, and um, there was a school in Vienna, Austria, for those days, a very advanced educational institution that would educate such kids in communicative skills and give the child a fair shot at adult life that would be somewhat meaningful instead of just rotting away in the corner as a deaf mute as it used to be. They couldn't do anything with the person. 
person was just totally out of it and was just sitting there like a, we call a temach, like a, like a plant and so on. So you'd think this is very, very good, but it was a dormitory situation, a full-time program, and it was a, it was a Catholic institution. So the food wasn't going to have, put it mildly, the badatz hersha, right? Everything's going to be treif. So can you put a child into that situation where you know that he's going to be fed non-kosher? The boy is six years old. So that at the end of the day, when he f- completes whatever is called completing, after a few years, this child is going to be a mensch uh, of, of some, on some level, we'll be able to communicate, and, and so on. So the Khatam Sofer writes a five-page responsum. This, this, that tells you right away, this wasn't easy. A five-page responsum that um, not being able to communicate, which puts a person into the halacha category of a no-bar-da'at. He doesn't have seichel. A person who doesn't have seichel is excused from mitzvot. Pashut excused, the concept of shoteh. Shoteh, you know, it's not, not what we call somebody in the colloquial a shoite, which means, you know, but, uh, but it's the same word. Shoteh is a halakha category of somebody who does not have intelligence, lack of intellectual you know, retardation, and that person is exempt. This is a shoteh patum and a mitzvot. So a cheresh, that the Mishnah talks about a cheresh, is not a person who doesn't hear but can talk. That person is obligated in mitzvot. And the only mitzvah that was probably that person could not fulfill is shoifer. Because the mitzvah of shoifer is to hear. And I'm not talking about hearing with hearing aid and hearing with cochlear implant. That's, that's already the next generation of chuvot in Allah. I'm talking about somebody who just can't hear. Deaf, totally deaf, absolutely deaf. person has to put on tefillin, person has to daven, even though you don't hear the words, you have to do everything. You're obligated in mitzvot, bekitzah. Because he's bardan. And the Rambam, 850 years ago, already knew something absolutely sensational, that the um, ability to hear is a function of speech. Not everybody knew that then. They didn't know that. That how does a baby learn how to speak? Because he hears. The hearing, it has to be up to par. And today we know that if you take a baby who's two years old, is not yet speaking, you better give that kid a hearing test and two years old is it's probably late to give the kid such a hearing test. This is shop talk at home, you know, with the, as I get all the time. And, and how the earlier the better. By the way, to give a kid a hearing test before the baby is left, leaves the hospital after birth. There is a very basic hearing test that 95, 98% pass right away. It's not an issue. And if you fail that test, it's not an issue either. You just have to make, do a better test afterwards. And usually in the second test, yeah, there is a test that they do. And my wife told me that uh, you could take an infant, a day old, and, you know, and how do you measure if the infant one day old? All right, when you hear the beep, raise your hand, right? The one day old is not going to be able to do that. But if you slam a door and you watch, let's say, the eyebrow go up or a toe twitch, and you do it three times and you see the same reaction, the baby hears. There are all kinds of reactions that a baby will do so you don't get a full baseline uh, audiometry on this but you can walk out and saying this baby's not deaf that for sure 100% but then if you have a baby a half a year old and he still can't cooperate in a, in a soundproof room so you have what's called an ABR which is a it's, we discovered that when you hear the brain emits electrical uh, uh, waves and that's measurable there's a distant cousin of mine who actually has a patent on it, uh, Professor Chaim Sommer, lives in Givat uh, Mordechai, and that is a machine that won't do it for everybody, it's expensive, so that's why if you can raise your hand and hear the beeps, that's good, but if you have a comatose patient, and you want to know if the person's hearing, or a insurance claim where you think the patient is faking it, so, all right, you know, just give him an ABR. <laughs> you don't have to have... It's involuntary, you know. You, you hear it. The machine registers it that you heard. It's as simple as that. So, uh, the Cheresh the Ilmim today is less likely than days of the Khatam Sofer. So, days of the Khatam Sofer, uh, somebody who didn't have this special education was lost. So, he gave up Sak and said that becoming from a non-Bardaat to a Bardaat where he even admits that once the kid has communicative abilities and skills, he now becomes a bar da'at. Somebody who has da'at intelligence from a halachic standpoint is nothing less than pikuch nefesh. 
is nothing less than pikuach nefesh. That this is saving the guy, the kid's life. He has gone from being a, a, a lost case to now a human being that will be able to function on some level and, and, and with proper education will be able to perform some mitzvot, maybe not all. But that means you're doing the person a big favor by doing it. And because he classified it as pikuach nefesh, it overrides eating treif. That's a big, big statement. Now here comes the disappointment. <laughs> After five pages of coming up with the conclusion that it's mutter, that it's permissible, Chaim Sofer says to the man, it's mutter, you can send the kid to the school in Vienna. But you know, if it was my kid, I wouldn't do it. Because there's a Kabbalistic idea, Kabbalistic idea, that treif metamte metalev somehow um, impurifies a person's heart. There's something that happens as a negative impact on a person's neshama by simply eating non-kosher. I'd rather have him as a cheresh ilayim. I must tell you, I was disappointed. With the greatest respect and awe for the Chatam Sofer, believe me, he was one of the outstanding luminaries of the 19th century. One of the all-time greats of the Poiskim, to make that kind of a comment at the end of the day, because I have no clue what the man did. I mean, if you walk away with that tshuva and you're happy, all right, now I can do something, and it comes to Chavetz Chaim, he takes the air out of the balloon. He says, by the way, I wouldn't do it. And you know, there are some people who hear something like that from the Chatam Sofer, well, if he wouldn't do it, I wouldn't do it either. And you're dooming that kid for life, basically. So again, I'm, the Chatam Sofer is not here for me to ask him. I would respectively have asked him to, to, to really clarify, and maybe I'm missing something here, but it was, that, that's how the tshuva really comes to an end. But nevertheless, the Rav Yosef deals with the question of a cheresh ilayim shalamad v'betsefer lechershim ilmim u'mitnaheg ke'ish b'keach. And you can see the man, in source number five, he's conducting himself like an intelligent person. V'yachol gam ken l'daberzat. And he can even talk a little bit. They even taught him how to, you know, learn how to articulate some words. Barur. Fine, you, you know, you hear right away. It's a slurred type of speech. Can he be part of a minion? Was the question. So he says, apparently, this is after three pages of source writing. I just printed here the bottom line. Apparently, apparently, what's the bottom line? It's worth accepting the giants of Torah who have ruled leniently on this question, which already tells you that there was a fight, a halakhic battle on this. But he's willing to take the stick out his neck and go with the lenient, to include what does he say? He says, listen, there's a problem about Chazor Sashatz. Because that's extra brachot. So you know, there's a little bit of a gimmick that we know about, that we use in shuls if we're sometimes a little bit late for Mincha time. You don't do a full Chazor Sashatz. After Ashrei, Chazan says Kedusha, the Kaddish. And then the Chazan begins the Chazor Sashatz out loud for the first three brachot. And Kahal says Kedusha. And everybody just continues silently. And that's, that's the davening. So Rabbi recommends if you have a minion and one of the ten is such a cheresh ilayim, that's what you should do. Because it's okay, you can do it. And there's no problem that the Chazan then repeated 19 extra brachot in the Shmonesre. So, so you see how he took into consideration the machmirim, the strict opinion, by orchestrating an opinion that's based on the lenient opinion. And it's, it's a lot of gymnastics uh, what goes on here. And, and, and this is what he did. And now the question is, what, what other case? We just have a few minutes. person who, in a, 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 one of the seven original, well, seven members of the family who passed away, who got to sit shiva for, so before the Levaya, there's a concept called aninut. And it's a, just a, a transitionary period. 
And the Avelut, the mourning period, begins right after the Kfura, right after the burial itself. At the cemetery, that's when you take off the shoes, and that's where they make the lime, the shura, and you get the Mokom Yenachim ready for the first time. So that's where the Avelus begins. So before that, from the moment that the, of the, of the parting of the, the departed persons uh, left this world until the, after the Kfura, it's called Aninut, where essentially the person who's going to be an Avel is exempt from positive mitzvot. Except, but not all, don't get me wrong. But he doesn't daven, he doesn't wash his hands, he doesn't say brachot, doesn't say kriyachma, all kinds of things that the uh, onen is patur. What if uh, the onen, it happens to be in shul, uh, gets a phone call, comes to shul at uh, 7 in the morning for the 7 o'clock minion, and gets a phone call that uh, one of the seven krovim died, just then and there, right then and there. And now they're starting to daven, and he's the 10th man. So he's not going to daven. He's not going to daven. I'll tell you, myself from Rabbaran Salavechik, and I heard this from Chavar, uh, Dr. David Applebaum, Hashem Yikom Damo. So he said that uh, when uh, Rabbaran's wife was, uh, was uh, going to die, she was passing, she was a uh, Goseset, and it was first thing in the morning, Rabbaran told the sons, quickly put on tefillin, because after your mother died, you're going to be exempt from tefillin. So I told this to my wife, she says, that's, <laughs> that's a halachist. That's it, your mother's dying right in front of you. And what you have in your mind is, you've got to put on tefillin, because in 10 minutes I'm going to be exempt from tefillin, won't be able to put on tefillin. Okay, now that's an ish halacha, you have to understand that. So, uh, Onen, somebody who's in this category, can you count him to a minion? And the chida, that's Chaim uh, Yosef David Azulai, one of the great Svardi uh, uh, poskim, in the Birkei Yosef, printed in Shulchan Aruch, says, in source number 6, you can't count them to be the tenth person because he's exempt from mitzvot. And then comes the whole question, and if a person is exempt from mitzvot, does he have at that moment the sanctity, the Kedushat Yisrael, to produce a minion that's based on the pasuk, the Nikdashti Betoch Bnei Yisrael. So that's, this is another source that Rav Bakshi brings into the discussion of here you have another case scenario. So his bottom line, let's get to the bottom line. So his bottom line at the end of the day, he quotes the Pasuk in Shira Shirim. Source number seven. Ani yishena v'libi er. What does that mean? I'm sleeping, but my heart is beating and alive and awake. So he says, I'll translate this as I go. In light of everything we just said, Shekdushat adam gam keshu yashen. We can adopt the position the person who's sleeping is still has sanctity as a person with Kedusha because innately his will and his mind is to fulfill mitzvot. As it says, Ani Yeshena Vilibi Er, unfortunately, in a case of an Alzheimer person, the whole memory is just uh, out the window, and therefore you cannot assume this person is a bardat. What was, was, but at the moment, they're not functioning. His will to, to connect to Kadosh Baruch Hu is not functioning. He's a, ve- he's a vegetative state walking. That's how a doctor described it. The body is functioning, but not his mind. His heart is not alive either. Heart physically, cardiologically, yes, but not uh, spiritually. For this purpose, like a sleeping person would be accounted, according to most opinions, the, as we saw in Shulchan Aruch at the beginning, this person not. And he, he, he concludes and says, There is a machloket here. Can you take that sleeping person? We saw the different opinions, different takes on it. The man has knowledge, and has intelligence, or an inner will, the key mitzvot. All you have to do is tap him on the shoulder and you'll get a positive response on this. He does have the sanctity that's necessary to join a minion. Haosrim, those who say no about the sleeper, Meirim claim, Sheruach Tumah Sharab and therefore as a person with Ruach Tumah, he cannot be counted. So you saw that with the sleeper, it's split into the Kabbalists against the Alachas. 
דומה כי לחולה אלצהיימר אין דעת ולא מחשבה ורצון, הוא פטור מכל המצוות כשוטה. מכוח זה קשה לומר שכתושת יסוד שורה עליו, it's difficult to say that for purposes of minion counting, the person has כדושה. Therefore, he says, That doesn't mean the person shouldn't be brought to shul. That doesn't mean that. All it means is that if you're stuck with the, and he's the tenth man, it's a problem. I'm going to write the fourth line here. And if that happens, I would fall back on the Gemara, and bring into the picture... You know, a child, so maybe you, you, you give the Chayla Sheyeshba Alzheimer. He makes a difference between a Katan and a Chayla Sheyeshba Alzheimer. Because a Katan does have knowledge, know, does know how to daven. There's a big difference between a kid under Bar Mitzvah and a Chayla Alzheimer in terms of, you know, connecting to Kadosh Baruch A world of a difference. But I would seek out, you know, either what the Rav said, a baby, because Rabbi Shulman Levi said, I would take a baby in the carriage and count him to a minion for that reason. Or, uh, as the Ramos says, uh, a nine, ten-year-old, you know, give him a chumash in the hand. I would somehow figure out a way to complete the minion with the Choyla Alzheimer without having to count him as the tenth man. But I certainly would continue to encourage the family to bring such a person on a regular basis to shul to give the person some degree of regularity and uh, that too... Uh, would be an important part of, uh, of his or her existence uh, for that day. All right, so I know it's not a, exactly a pleasant topic, but look what we accomplished. We've gone through a, a real tool of halakha, and more than just broad dinim, but also halachic process. We've touched on here the halachic process, how, how complex this is, and that's why a lot of people, they think they know the din, uh, you know, a lot of people, they think they know the din, and all of a sudden, when a Rav who's, uh, who's really competent and is aware of all the various angles and complexities and views and everything, all of a sudden comes up with an opposite conclusion because, because it's different. Uh, this morning we didn't say Tachlan and Shul because there was a Brit in Shul. Okay, fine. So is it because you have a Brit in Shul you don't say Tachlan? Why don't you say Tachlan if there's a Brit in Shul? So it's not that because there's a Brit... It's because there's a concept that if there's a simcha to a klal, we, can't, we don't say tachtun, it's a yamtuf. Now you have to establish that a brit is a simcha. So what makes a brit and a simcha? So going to most paiskim, you have to have the father or the moil or the sandak present in shul. And then come later, paiskim will say, as long as there's going to be a brit in that building that day at two in the afternoon, so the morning minion also doesn't say uh, uh, tachtun. In Prague, in the days of the maharal, in the Alt Neuschul, that famous central synagogue, when there there was a Brit, the Gabaim sent messages to all the shuls in Prague not to say Tachdan, because that shul radiated Simcha to the entire community of Prague. So that's why you don't say Tachdan. It's not because Brit is no Tachdan. That's a Balabatish thing to say. It's a Simcha for Klal And then the question is, how narrow or how wide do we define a simcha for Klai Yisrael? So we know if a chatan comes to shul in Shabbat Yemei Mishteh, brothers, the kahal does not say tachna. What if the kahal shows up for mincha alone? Right? It happened to me in Ramot, by the way. I asked, where's the chosen? Well, what's going on here? Why is she here alone? She's supposed to be with the chosen for Shevet Mei Mishteh. It happened in YU once. I think I mentioned this in the Shir of Rav David Lifshitz, which is Yardsiders in these days, 25 years ago. So uh, a, a guy came to Shir and three days after his wedding, and Rav David Lifshitz yelled at him. So he says, you're now to be without your wife. So the next day he came to Shir with his wife. And uh, <laughs> says, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, so, so the answer is that if the, if the kala is in shul, shivit me mishteh, it is, a, it is a, a, a simcha, but you have to adopt the position that a woman in the Ezrat Nashim becomes part and parcel of the seaboard, and that's a machloket. And that's a machloket. Okay. No, 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 the bintman can be a female also. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Got to get in a lot of material here today. <laughs>